0: Good morning. Uh, Ro thought he was going to get me crying early today. <laughs> he did. He did. Um, we are blessed. We are blessed here to be a part of what God is doing at Ignite. Um, I don't think for a second I deserve to be a part of it. Um, I hope that that's your orientation, that we don't we don't deserve this. We come and we do these things that God allows us to do them. He, he involves us. He includes us. And I thank God for that um, because uh, we get to be a part of building his Kingdom, doing His work, and not because we deserved it, not because we've earned it, in spite of us, not because of us. So, um, but uh, I do appreciate uh, all of you that make this uh, make this happen each week—the uh, greeting, coffee making, uh, the handshaking, the smiling, the hugging. Um, so much of it you, you won't find on the website. Uh, you just find when you come in through these doors, um, and uh, appreciate you all. Um, uh administrative uh, note to begin before I get into the sermon uh today. Um, speaking about benevolence, we brought this up this morning in our life group. Um, a, a number of you have been very generous in in, in uh, offering uh, benevolence to uh this church to be distributed um, to those in need. I want to I want you to know um, uh, just to hear from the pastor's mouth and this uh um, this would be echoed by uh, either the two elders as well, that we, we take it very seriously. When we're uh, given funds uh, to be distributed. We take it very seriously. And, and so what doesn't happen is that we have a pile of money. We just start, as they say, the kids say, <coughs> making it rain. We, we don't make it rain. We, we pray about what, uh, where that money should be given. Um, we prayerfully consider uh, who needs it. Uh, and a priority is given, I'll just tell you this right off the bat, a priority is given to the household of faith. Because that's a biblical concept. Uh, but beyond that, we believe God has blessed us, not just to have a pile of money, but to be able to bless uh, other people. And so we've been able to do that. And as needs come to us, and as we're uh, we're aware of those needs, um, we do work uh, to to have those needs vetted, to make sure we're not being had, that your money is being stewarded well. Uh, so I want you to know that. Now, on the heels of that, uh, as careful as we try to be, I, uh, there's there's a, been a need that's been brought to my attention, uh, much of the town's attention. Um, and, and there's a great need. Uh, a very, uh, tragic thing happened recently, very suddenly, to a family that, uh, whose lives touch many of the lives in this building. Alright, so this is not some unknown, this is not some, uh, some distant thing, but there's a family in great need of love and support. And uh, not just, hey, we're praying for you, but hey, I'm writing a check for you. Uh, you your burden, your, your difficulty, your, your hardship, is mine because that's what kingdom people do and so i'm going to ask you this morning we don't have much of a timeline for this so i'm going to ask you if god is stirring in your heart even as i speak uh that this, this it might be a need i can't get into the specifics but if it's a need that you might be able to help me uh, we're asking you to consider above and beyond what you normally give because we have to keep lights on we have to keep toilets flushing my least favorite part of this is, is keeping the building going uh, but uh Above and beyond that, if you're willing to deep, dig a little bit deeper in your pockets, uh, there's a great need, and we're, uh, we're going to be uh, giving to that, uh, hopefully this week or the next, to the family uh, to, to ease some of the great burden that they're feeling right now. So um, I hope I did that tastefully. Just understand that the need is great. Uh, the tragedy was great. Uh, hearts are in great need of comfort and love right now. and So do pray. Uh, you offer your condolences if you know who i'm talking about but also uh sometimes it helps to put our money where our mouth is um and so i'd ask you invite you to join me in doing that um yes thank you ed um when you when you give that uh and thank you in advance for all of you that will be a part of that if you can't we understand that we do understand some people will not be able to give to that but if you can we just ask you to mark that so it's conspicuous to us so when when they're counting money and divvying it up that they know this goes into the benevolence bucket anything marked benevolence or gift or something other than tithe tithe is the indication this is going to the regular operational expenses anything other than tithe we're taking as this must be for this benevolence right so um, uh, that can help you uh, know how to mark that so it goes to the right place but Again, need is great, and so we we appreciate in advance. Um, Okay, so last week, great week, huh? Last week was a good week. Uh, They didn't know I was going to do this to them. put their Put their beautiful faces on the screen for you, but yeah, we'll leave that up for the duration of the service today. Uh, We'll We'll have a vote at the end, and yeah, (laughs) no Superman cape this time. But uh no I so appreciate it. last week and a number of you came up to me afterwards um, and I was so blessed by the testimonies I, and I knew mo- most of them I knew most of what was going to be shared I already knew that about them because I've spent a lot of time with those uh those gentlemen but uh it was great for you to be able to hear it it was great for you to hear the heart uh and the conviction the love that they have for you and and this work in the kingdom uh is all a beautiful things so I was I was really uh, glad to be a part of that last week and a number of you came up to me and said man what a blessing this week was uh, new people, in fact, uh, Rick Wilson said, you know what, uh, following the church, he said, I feel like God just grew our church. The very next conversation I had was with a lady who was here for the first time uh, and said, I think this is my home. Very next conversation. So God is working. God is doing things. God is stirring, and he's making things happen. You know, we just have to say thank you, God, uh, for being who you are. Um, all right, so on to our message this week. We are getting close I always have a bittersweet kind of feeling with the, with the close of a, of a series. Because I get, I get into the rhythm of the series and it, it becomes, week by week it's a little bit easier. I know where I kind of go on, I know the structure, I know what's going on. But we are in our sixth of seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapters two and three. I'll spare you all the quotations. I did, I do owe you an apology because a couple weeks ago I, I told you I was going to give you some more lyrics. I had quoted the Oak Ridge Boys (laughs) and I had quoted Bon Jovi. And I thought the next quote that I gave would probably end up in the pastoral unemployment line. Uh, but uh, but uh, but last week we talked about, oh, I'll get there in a moment. But the first church, if we get the next slide up, the first church was Ephesus. We've called this at times the apathetic church. We've also referred to it as the loveless church. They were doing all the right things, right? They were going through the motions. They were uh, checking all the boxes. I, I call it check the box Christianity. I know I should go to church. Check, did it. I, I know that I should probably read my Bible once at least once a year. Check, did it. More than that, uh, I know that I should probably call on somebody once in a while. Check, did it. And our lives, our Christian lives, become a staccato list of, of things that we did that we want to give to the Creator, the King, and say, isn't this good enough? Uh, but they did it with no love. That's the problem at Ephesus. They, they did it without the love that they had at first. So they're the loveless or the apathetic church. Smyrna, the suffering church. And sometimes our church suffers, Right? Sometimes things happen. We are people. We are messy people. And sometimes messy people create bigger messes when they get together, right? Amen? Don't leave me by myself up here. I'm not the only mess maker out here. I know, I see all of you. All right. Show of hands. All right, but Smyrna is a suffering church. And, and God said, the risen Christ says to Smyrna, look, I, I know you've been suffering. You're going to suffer some more. It's it's it's. I'm going to turn it. The heat is going to be turned up on you. Uh, some of you are even going to die for your faith. And of course, we don't expect that in this, in, in this, uh, time, in this day and age, uh, in, in the freest country on the planet. We don't expect that to come to a city near us. But understand, that's the full trajectory of following Christ is that it might cost you that. And it certainly did the Smyrna, uh, people. Pergamon was the compromising church. They, they looked out at the world around them, the culture around them, and said, yeah, I kinda like some of that. I kinda like some of this. Why don't we go ahead and invite some of that into the church? And they were compromising. They were flirting with compromise with the world, the culture, what the, what the culture said you should be all about. The next church, the uh, church at Thyatira, was the fully compromised church because they weren't just interested in flirting with what was going on in the culture. They invited it in to be a prominent teacher among them. And so we we got we have to guard who we let do what, right? And so uh, we don't just say, hey, come on in. Well, nice to meet you. You want to go teach the kids? I take very seriously. Not many of you should want to be teachers. You know, the Bible says that in James, not many of you should want to be teachers. That scares me to death. That's all I do is teach. Why? Because a greater, a greater judgment is coming on the teacher because you're responsible for dividing this word. And man, is it hard work? Who knows it? Who knows how hard that work is? It's tough work to do it right. It's easy to just kind of present it and let it be what it is, but uh, it's tough work to do it right. Um, but, so we, we guard those positions, we guard our children's minds, uh, from false teaching and all those things. Well, this church had invited this woman Jezebel, whether she was a, a real woman in the first century or just kind of uh, an allusion to that Old Testament Jezebel. And not many people go to the Bible, look for Bible names for their kids, not many people signing up for Jezebel. I don't think I even know a Jezebel. Is you? Is there anybody else? I'm sorry if you do. Um, and I'm sorry to Jezebel because she didn't she didn't do anything to to deserve me me calling her out. But uh, Thyatira was the compromised church. And then we have Sardis, the dead and dying church, a church that thought that they were alive. They had the reputation for being alive. And so the danger for us is that we're a young church, right? Seven years, seven seven years is young. That's a very young church. Um, the, the danger though is once we get this machine operating, once the machine is humming. Once everything seems like it's in place and everything's going well, we just kind of sit back on our laurels and, and, and just like, it's going now. Just let it go. And, and then we become deaf to the Spirit. We become deaf to the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you took a left. I wanted you to take a right. What were you doing? Well, the, the, the reality is I wasn't listening. We weren't listening. And so we don't want to be the dead or dying church that sometimes doesn't know, caught uh, unawares or off guard. They Remember uh, Sardis was a church sitting on top of a 1,500-foot peak. And they were so lax in their defenses because they thought nobody can take us. We're so high up. We don't, we didn't even have a guard. A guard force. They, they were asleep at night. Uh, no Trojan horse even needed to take that city. And so we don't want to be uh, guilty of that either. And that brings us to Philadelphia. You say, I know where Philadelphia is. Who knows where Philadelphia is? What's going on? You don't. You th- you're thinking Philadelphia, the wrong side of Pennsylvania. Me being a Pittsburgh fan, I, you know. It's God's side is the West End, uh, but uh, but Philadelphia. So this is where we're going. The the Faithful Church of Philadelphia, Revelation chapter three verses seven through thirteen. If you want to turn there now, uh, we're going to get there in a moment. But in Philadelphia, we get a, a break from the constant beatdown of these churches, right? Because what we're trying to do with all these churches, what we're trying to do, as I said from the outset, is we're we're looking. We're trying to improve our vision, right? Our our goal is twenty twenty vision, not just a bad pastoral pun. But our goal here this year is to get better vision going forward. Right? Put our spiritual glasses on and see clearly. And sometimes the best way to do that is hindsight. We look at a church that's already experienced some of this stuff and we say, hey look, I can learn from experience that I haven't had myself. I don't need to fall into a hole to realize the hole's there. I saw somebody else fall in the hole. That's good enough for me. I'll, I'll avoid the hole. I'll go around the hole. Right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, emulate the good things that we see from these churches and we're trying to avoid the bad. Well, good news for you this week. There's no bad. There's nothing negative to be said of the Church of Philadelphia. And that's why they are. They are this sermon title is The Faithful Church of Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is uh, known as the city of brotherly love. I won't go into it. But in the history of the founding of this nation, it was a, uh, the, the founder's love for his brother. Uh, so phileo is a Greek word for love. And delphoi, brother. So love of brother. The one who has love for his brother. And this king had love for his brother. So he named the city that. This uh, city of Philadelphia is about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. It's the youngest of the seven cities so far. Youngest of the seven churches so far. So is there a parallel there? Young churches, right? We can, we can jump right in here and say, this is us. What can we learn from this church? The whole purpose of the founding of the city uh, of Philadelphia was to spread Greek culture. What's the purpose of the, of the church? To spread Christianity, Right? And so we see a lot of parallels already before you even jumped into the text. But the purpose was to spread Greek language and Greek culture. And they did so, so well that within a couple of generations, they had forgotten their language. They'd already adapted, so wholly had they adapted the Greek language that they said, yeah, forget about that old stuff we learned. We like this new stuff. And, and it was ideally set up in a place geographically where they called it the gateway to the east. So if you see the map, you see Mysia and Phrygia and Lydia, all to the kind of east and northeast And that was kind of ideal for commerce and for trade. And so they were the gateway to the east, Ideal, uh, an ideal place set up for the spread of the gospel. All those things, have you noticed that all the introductions have kind of set us up for the text and what the text says? And even the introduction of the risen Christ himself in each of these has set us up for what the risen Christ is doing and saying about that church. Uh we're going to get to the text in a second here but let's uh let's pray uh first. Lord we thank you. Uh we thank you for using us. We thank you Lord for using us in spite of us not because of us. We know that you don't need us. Uh but Father, you you have as our Father, you have said I want to you I want I want to use my children. I want to love my children. I want to put them to work building the kingdom. And so Lord, we just uh we want that this morning. We want your kingdom to swell this morning. We want your spirit here in power this morning. We want lives changed this morning. We want lives transformed and fixed this morning. But Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, might, might you speak more powerfully than my message possibly could on its own. Might you speak powerfully to that, the, that person's heart, Lord, that they would stay afterwards and ask questions and dig through these things, Lord, and find you at the bottom. That's our goal, Lord. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you by all that we say and all that we do. And so, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of this. Uh, Bless your word and the hearing of your word today. Uh, That, again, that lives might be changed and, and hearts redirected to you. We thank you in advance for the work that you're going to do in and through this message and the songs that we've already sung. And we pray these things, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the text, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, to the church in Philadelphia. Who does the risen Jesus present himself as this time? So verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. These are the words of the risen Christ to the church at Philadelphia. Now we know God is holy, right? We know God is holy. We know God is true. Well, this is the risen Christ talk. He's sharing in the very being of God the Father. But have you ever had any, any question about whether Jesus, should I really believe that Jesus is divine? Should I really believe that Jesus is part of the Godhead? As as confusing as that doctrine can be, and I I fully admit to you that the Trinity is probably the most complex and confusing doctrine that we have in the Christian church. And for my own sake, whenever there's something I can't explain adequately in my own, my own ability, I kind of wish we didn't have to believe it. But there it is in the scriptures, throughout the scriptures. We have to believe it. We, it's a mystery to us. We don't know how it works. But Jesus is divine. He's not set himself up to be treated as some prophet. He's not just some good teacher. If he was just some good teacher who convinced all of his best friends to die for a lie, he was not a good teacher. Jesus, the risen Christ, is Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. He shares glory with nobody but the Father the Spirit, in that perfect unity of the triune God. That's Jesus. And so you might struggle to, to say, how do I explain that to people? But don't, don't worry about explaining, show them the, te- the text. Show them the scriptures. Say, it's there. But Jesus is saying not only is God the Father holy, not only is God the Father true, but Jesus himself is holy. Jesus himself is true. The word holy is the Greek word "hagios." It means different, separate from. Set apart. If you look at the etymology of the word "separate," it means set apart. And what do you use that to say? Well, what really separates or sets apart this athlete from all the other athletes? Man, their 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 quick burst of speed, or their ability to uh, to get off the blocks if you're a track runner, or or your ability to this or that, your agility, whatever it might be. There might be something special about you that sets you apart from the group. And this holiness is a thing that only God has attained. He calls us, though. Doesn't He call us? It's our motivation. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Getting ahead of myself a little bit. I, I love this song. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. If you ever thought, man, that song just repeats, and repeats, and repeats. I don't, just don't like that song. It repeats too much. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are what the four creatures around the throne are singing non-stop. Not because God forgot, but because that's the most praise that they can give to God enthroned. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And again, it's our motivation. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, come out from among them and be Separate, right? Be holy. Be set apart. You you were purchased with the blood of Christ. You are now not your own. Those of you that know Jesus as Savior, as personal Lord and Savior, you no longer have control of your life. You've yielded that to the Spirit. You've yielded that to Jesus and take the wheel. And I'm not talking, see, I'm quoting songs again, but I'm not meaning to. Carrie Underwood. But we really said, Jesus, take the wheel. We forfeit our rights to ourselves. We became bondservants of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Willing slaves. That's what what that word means. A bondservant. Come out from among them and be separate. Be holy. And God is also true. He's not just holy. He's also true. Now, our, our minds think true versus False, right? True or false test. And, and really the meaning in the Greek here is, is more about, uh, is more about real versus fake. Authentic versus phony. And there's elements of the real versus true as well. Uh, but, but really what we're saying is God is the realest deal that there is. Not like us, we come in here flaky, one day we're doing good and we're, we're singing the worship songs, our hands are up and we're praising God. The next week you see our head hanging because we know, we know we've been singing our faces off all week long. And we know that we don't want to come in and be open hypocrites, so we just kind of quietly look at the floor, wait for it to end. You know, I'm checking the box. I'm here. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing my part, but I'm just here. But God's not like that. God is true. God is real. God is not fake. He's not phony. He's not a fraud. Do you know like God can't lie? Titus one two. God cannot lie. What's He going to lie for? What is He? He doesn't have to trick you into believing anything. He's God. He doesn't have to lie to anybody. What's he going to lie about? And then Hebrews chapter six verse eighteen takes it a little bit further, tightens that screw a little bit. It says, "For God, it's impossible to lie. It's not. It's not in His nature. And even if it were, it, it's not something He needs to do. He's the Creator, sustainer of the universe. He spoke, and the world came into existence. Does He need to defend Himself? I don't think so. We need to get right with that God, that Creator, that sustainer of the universe." But he owes us no explanation. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. His word is truth. Remember that from John chapter 17, his prayer for his, his uh, disciples? He says, sanctify, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It is the standard by which we judge everything else. But why is it true? Because God said it. That's That's it. That's all you need, because God said it, it is the standard by which everything else is measured. His word is truth. This Holy One, this Jesus, has the key of David. You say, what does that even mean? That's what I said this week, what does that even mean? So I looked, and I studied. You have to understand that the book of Revelation has over 340 quotes or allusions to the Old Testament in it. Probably more than any other New Testament book, it relies so heavily on the Old Testament. So if you come to the book of Revelation, everyone wants to study Revelation. Everyone wants to know that weird uh, uh, symbolism, everything else. We want to understand that book of Revelation because it's cool. There's lots of movies based on it. Probably poorly done and, and badly interpreted. But there we have it. Uh, movies that talk about Revelation, it gets us excited. But if you don't know your Old Testament, you're sorely prepared to jump into the book of Revelation. Because 348 times, quotes or allusions, references made to the Old Testament. This is one of them, the key of David. We go back to Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. The key, the, the person that held the key, had administrative right over the rule and reign. It wasn't the king himself necessarily, because in Isaiah 22, verse 22, we have the king Hezekiah and his servant Eliakim, who's given the keys of David. The verse says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. What it meant was that the person who held the key of David held access to the king himself. They're the gatekeeper. Nobody got to see the king unless the gatekeeper, those that that, that person that held the key, said that you could. So Jesus, the risen Christ, has the key of David. And we think, uh, of course, primarily that means the messianic kingdom. He allows those uh, who he wills uh, into the kingdom. It brings a whole new meaning to the idea and and the verse we've quoted several times the last several weeks, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you're not coming through me, you're not getting in. So doesn't that bring a new meaning to that. The key of David, Jesus, the Christ, the risen Christ, Holds that key and says, you're not getting to the Father but by me. Yes, it's exclusive. Do I like that it's exclusive? Well, it's hard to, it's, isn't it hard to preach that message? To your Muslim friends or your Buddhist friends or somebody else that holds some different worldview. Your atheist friends. Don't all roads lead to Rome? All the wrong ones do. There's only one that leads through Jesus. It is Jesus. <laughs> and the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. And that risen Christ says, I know your works. Just like he has in all the other cities. He said, I see you. I know you by name. I'm watching everything that's going on. I see the good. I see the bad. I see your struggle. I see your efforts. I see your persecution. I see the difficulties that crowd upon you when you try to do my will. I see you. And I see your works. We're not sure what works exactly. A couple of them are listed in this text. But in response to those good works, God's response is an open door. An open door. We see probably two possible interpretations. Maybe some elements of both of them are true. I'm going to make use of both of them. First and foremost, foremost we see uh, the Messianic fellowship that's tied to this open door. You see, the, the Gentile believers in the in Philadelphia and elsewhere were denied table fellowship by the true Jews. Uh, those that had gone through all the Jewish rites, the circumcision and, and the feast, and they maintained all the rules and the rituals of their religion were the real Jews. They were the real deal. And if you were a Gentile who knew Jesus but nothing else, you are not welcome at their table. And Jesus says, whoa, hold on a second. Who do you think you are? I'm the risen Christ. I'm the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. And I decide who comes to the banquet table, not you. And aren't you glad that he does? So we have Messianic fellowship that was denied by those true Jews, those that saw their ethnic superiority. You know, God, with God there is no such thing as ethnic superiority. I hope you are not one who has ever, at any point in time, thought, now I'm better than that person because of the color of my skin. And there is one race, and we all need the same Jesus. No ethnic superiority, no ethnic inferiority. But that's what they thought, so they denied the Gentile believers a place at the table. But the second thing that this open door might mean, I think it probably, uh, probably is a stronger point here, is he's opened a door wide to effective ministry. Missionary opportunity. They're, they're situated geographically such that they're the gateway to the east, right? So doesn't it make sense that they have they have all these towns coming through them and doing trade deals with them? doesn't it make sense then that they would have an opportunity not just to do trade deals, but also to offer the most important message they possibly could. I've opened a door wide for you that nobody can shut. He says, I know your works, but I also know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. These are two of the works we just talked about. You've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Don't underestimate how important those two things are. Sometimes you feel like your tank is empty. Keep his word, don't deny his name. You've done everything that mattered that day if you did those two things. Trust that you'll wake up with new mercies and new, mercies anew new every morning, right? You're gonna wake up tomorrow, the sun's gonna uh, rise again, and you're gonna find grace to get through the next thing. But these two works are very important. They kept His Word, they did not, did not deny His name, although they had little power. They were small. Uh, they were perhaps very poor. They were a young church. Can we not identify a small church? A young church. We don't have a ton of money in the bank, but who's on the throne? Who's on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. A metaphor for means he owns everything. And he's not stymied, he's not worried that we're a young church, a small church, with little influence. Because he's going to take our little and make it great. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt, man, I'm just, I I don't have, I, I don't have what it takes. I hear it all the time. I used to tell my, my grandfather, who's he the he's the patriarch, and he's got and his, his library would swallow my library up ten times over. Probably got 2,000, 3,000 books in his library, and he's probably the reason why I'm a preacher. He's not a preacher, but he just he he did so demonstrated the, the importance of careful study that at 85 years old, he's still doing it. He's still buying new books, still adding to that collection. I said to him, "I said, uh, Grandpa, I, said, I think I'm going to start a Bible study when I'm ready." And he, all he heard was, "When I'm ready." And he said, "Don't you dare wait till you're ready, because you'll never start. You'll never be ready. You'll never think that you're ready. So just start being obedient to it." And I hear that ringing in my in my head constantly. His voice still in my head. Don't wait till you're ready. Don't wait till you're ready. Why do I, I say yes to almost everything? Will you, will you do this uh, this wedding? This funeral? This? Uh, I don't feel capable, but God has said, you know what? I don't call the equipped, I equip the called. And I'm going to take your your stuttering, your stammering, I'm going to take your inabilities, I'm going to turn them around. Because of your availability. And God is great, is he not? He set up before them an open door, though they have little power. They're small, they're poor, they're young, they're uninfluential. Yet, he says, just be faithful and let God be awesome. You be faithful. Don't you worry about being awesome. That's that's for God to be. We're just to be obedient. Can I get the next slide up? I uh, This wasn't that long ago. You can see the date there. April 28, 2019. Before I came to Ignite, but I had preached a message that I just thought, man, every week I think, man, there's, there's an opportunity to to really reach into the heart and soul of somebody and, and change forever their orientation. Change forever their trajectory eternally. That man, if I just say the right stuff, if I listen to the Spirit, if I say the right words, that maybe they're going to get it. And maybe their lives will be forever changed by what they, what they hear. And there's other weeks where I, I got to admit to you, there's other weeks where I come home and I tell Brindy, I say, I just made, I just survived. I just survived this week. And man, I, I couldn't run out of this door fast enough. Because of how poorly I felt like I did behind this pulpit. But, what's our favorite expression here? But? God. Let's say it together, but God, he doesn't need you to be awesome. He didn't need me to be awesome. And so I felt prompt. I thought maybe somebody, I had this revelation come to me at home after as I was sulking in my office about how poorly I just preached. And I said this, didn't deliver a great message this week. The fatigue was lingering from a heavy week at work and I just felt distracted. Anyone, anyone meet me there? You just feel distracted. You're heavy, you're tired. The good news is that God didn't need my message to be great. He doesn't need your message to be great. He just wanted me to be obedient. Maybe you feel that way lately, and maybe you can be encouraged by this thought as well. Just be obedient. Let God be awesome. Because He is, whether we recognize it or not. And I'm still going to have weeks like that. I'm still going to go home. Maybe today. And say, man, I could, I missed so many cues and I, I should have said this and I, I shouldn't have said that. But God doesn't need me to do that. Because right now His Spirit's doing all the stuff that I couldn't do. I can't do. Mighty God. Amen. Now where was I? <laughs> I started wandering. Up. You better get back over there. You better get back to that safety zone, that pulpit. Because all your notes are right there. Just be obedient. Let God be awesome. Because he is. Your little power, your little influence, these are little problems to God. They're not problems. He's not stymied by your limitations. I hear so many people very meekly and very humbly say, I just don't, I just feel like I have it. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. You have everything that you need to go be bold for him. We talked this morning in Life Group. I keep plugging that because I'd love to see your face there if you're not a regular attendee there, but um, sometimes just speak in the name of Jesus. Just be willing to speak the name of Jesus to somebody who might not have heard it. And you let the lion out of the cage on that one. You don't need to do a whole lot of work. But Jesus does the work, all right? Your little power, your little influence our little problems for our great God. You heard the song? I think it's a Gaither song, but little is much when God is in it. You heard that song? I kept, just kept hearing that in my head as I was getting ready to these notes ready. And so I went and looked it up. Uh, they don't say that phrase until like three minutes into the song. I kept like, okay, where is it? Where is it? It's in the title, but it's not in the song. Uh, it is in the song, but uh, little is much when God is in it. Uh, they had the only ability he was concerned about, their availability. And that may sound cliche, it may sound kind of chintzy, uh, pastor speak, but just remember that. Because it's going to matter to you some point in time when you've got nothing left in the tank but your availability. And you say, God, yes, whatever you want, I'll do it. I don't feel like I have it, but I know that you're great. and I don't, I don't need to be great. I can just be obedient. What do they do? He said, they kept my word and have not denied my name. My mind, for some reason, brought back to First Samuel chapter fifteen when uh, Saul uh, he, he missed a cue, and he says, uh, and uh, the prophet says to him uh, when he sh- he did something he shouldn't have done, he made a sacrifice that was actually not not uh, approved by God. It wasn't his place to do it. He says, "I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. I'd rather you be obedient than you try to make it make up for your disobedience with all this extra stuff." But don't we do that? We try to barter with God, like, ah, since I just kind of screwed up on this one, I'll I'll go ahead and do a bunch of extra. Mary's or the Protestant equivalent of that, whatever that is. I'll go to church twice on Sunday. Nobody will be there, but I'll be there, you know. Oh, good for you. Uh, But he didn't didn't need that. He didn't need that. Um, They have not denied his name. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. What does Jesus himself say? Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me, before man, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Big deal, not to deny the name of Jesus. You stay in keeping, in good stead with that name, and you'll be good. You'll be good to go no matter what comes at you. It's faithfulness, right? But it takes a long time to be faithful. That's it's in the definition, faithful. And what's our working definition? We've shared this a number of times. Eugene Peterson quote: "A long and steady obedience in the same direction." You don't get to overnight. You don't, you don't get to say, wake up one morning and say, I'm going to go ahead and be faithful. I'm going to be a faithful Christian today. That happens over the course of a lifetime. And so if, you, if you're flirting with the idea of, yeah, I'll give Jesus Sunday, but you can't have Monday through Saturday, that's dangerous ground that you're on. Jesus wants every single bit of it, but he's going to make it absolutely worth it over and over and over again, not just with eternal life, but here in this life. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about riches. I'm not talking about wealth. And health. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about communion with the Father. Perfect relationship with Jesus. There's You don't need anything else. And he's offering that to you. He continues, verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This synagogue of Satan, we've seen this term before. It again refers to the non-believing Jews, those that have denied Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as anointed one. And here's the irony. They believe with everything that they are. They believe that they're the ones on the ends. They believe that they're the the chosen ones. Because I am ethnic Israel. I am a descendant directly from Abraham. Doesn't that trump everything else? And God says, nope, doesn't even get you in the door. Because you misunderstood what I was saying. And it gives us several passages in the New Testament, just a couple for you. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. That promise, what was the promise to bless the entire world through Abraham? How did he achieve that? How did God achieve blessing the entirety of the world through Abraham? By Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of that promise. And so the question is, what have they done with the promise? What have they done with Jesus? And the answer is to reject him, then they're, they're no better off than the pagan Gentile that has never heard Jesus' name. Galatians chapter 6, we just finished this, so this should be kind of fresh in your memory. Galatians 6, verses 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. And so it's kind of been redefined. The the Israel of God is those who are faithful to that promise. Those who are are, uh, creed people. Those who believe. It says that uh, Abraham believed, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't by virtue of his being called. It was his belief, his, his trust in God's promises was what made him a status of righteous. Not because of something he did or, or a part of a family that he was a part of. Those who by faith received the promise. They are the true Israel of God. They are the true children of God. And let me just tell you, this is clearly as I know how, that God protects his children. God takes care of his children. If you are a child of God, I like to say that you are Invincible in this world, until the will of God is complete in your life. No weapon formed against you will prosper. That means how many weapons? It means if it's God's time to allow you to pass on into eternity, then and only then can those weapons formed against you do what they're intending to do. That's only because God intended for them to do it. God protects His children. He says... Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. They kept his word both in guarding the truths that it contained, which is, I keep saying this over and over again, it's, it's my job, one of my chief responsibilities, not to wrongly divide this word of truth, but also not to allow it to be wrongly divided in any of these rooms, at any time. Kept his word in guarding the truth, but also... Uh, in patient endurance, perhaps in the midst of severe persecution. This whole part of the world was under persecution systematically, most of the time, by Rome. But when Rome wasn't doing it, the Jews were happy to do it for them. See, obedience pays off, and ultimately, obedience pays off in the next life, but often it pays off in this one, too. And God says, "Uh, I'm going to keep them from that hour of, of trial. God wants to bless you. He wants to reward you. He wants to protect you but can i suggest that we have to be reward a bull? we have to be blessed a bull. we have to be defend a bull. or god might just let us drift out on our own and say you know what you've chosen to deny me over and over and over again you got this you got this. Have you ever told god that i got this one time in my life say something, Jeff, right? Not my best moment when I said, God, just let me do this thing that I want. Why can't you just let me do this thing that I want? Well, he let me. And I believe in my heart of hearts that I am still feeling the effects of it today. Don't, don't flirt with that. Don't mess with that. We have to be rewardable. We have to be blessable. We have to be defendable. Stay in that good relationship with God. Yeah, I thought about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we want to. We always want to flirt with the culture. We always want to flirt with the thing that's that's, uh, that's tempting us. And what did Abraham what, goes and he pleads to God not to destroy this wicked city, Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, "Hey, God, I know who you are. I know you're God of promises. You're God of protection and blessing. If there are fifty righteous people, would you still destroy the city?" God says, "You know what? No, I wouldn't. I don't think I would." And Abraham knows in his heart of hearts, he knows there aren't 50 righteous people in that city. So he says, hey, what about 45? We take shave five off, maybe that'll get us in the door. And God says, yeah, 45, I probably wouldn't destroy it. And Abraham knows in his heart of hearts, there aren't 45 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, how about 40? No, how about 30? How about 20? And he eventually gets down to 10 and God still destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because there weren't 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have got to be people that fix our eyes on the cross, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Not everything the world is trying to distract us with. It's not going to get it done. We can't flirt with those things. So what are they being protected from? That hour of trial that is coming. I'll just say this. I'm not going to try to convince you of my position here. Um, A lot of people would go to the uh, pre-tribulational rapture here and say God is going to protect them from the hour of the, the tribulation. I don't believe that. I believe God's M.O. is not to take you, whisk you out of problems, but to, to make you safe in them. And to say, I'm going to protect you in, in the storm. I'm not, I'm not going to whisk you out of the storm. I'm going to put you right in the middle of the storm. And just like Daniel and the lion's done, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. They're in the fire, but they're not burning up. And that's God's M.O. Again, if you believe in those things, I'm not trying to change your mind. We can, we can talk afterwards about why you're not right, but... Uh, I kid. Mostly. We're not going to figure it out. The church has been debating these things for a couple thousand years, and, and I don't pretend to think that I have a corner on the truth. But uh, Anyway, I am coming soon, he says, verse 11. Amen, huh? I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We are to be ready at all times, in all places, because his coming is soon and near. Now, soon can be soon as we understand it, but the problem is, for us it's a problem, it's not a problem for God. It can also be soon as he sees it, as he understands it. And what does he say? I think it's in Second uh, Peter 3, and verse 8. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day to God in his timing. So soon might mean in our generation Soon might mean a hundred generations from now. But soon, he is coming. I am coming soon. And again, I heard this old song. I don't know why my head was filled with old songs this week. But soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. You know, we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since the new covenant. Since that time, we are in the last days. So we, we wait with hopeful expectation for Jesus to come. In the meantime, we have a job to do, right? He says, we're in the last days now, but be so be ready. But hold fast. We had, uh, we had a, a, a devotional in a men's breakfast yesterday about standing strong. Why? Because everything in this world is going to, to, to try to compete for your attention, to keep, compete for your affection, compete for your love and your time. It's as if he's saying, hey, look, you've made it this far, Philadelphia. You've made it this far. Don't slip up. Don't give up. Don't back down. Don't stand down. Stand up for these things. Who's going to stand up for these things in this church? Tell me. Who's going who's gonna to stand up? And if you feel led, go ahead and stand up right now. Who's going to stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ? Because I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. Ignite Christian Church. I am coming soon. The battle's going to be over soon. It's not yet. It's not yet. So he's saying stand firm, stand strong, while we're still in the fight. You can go ahead and sit down. Appreciate you all standing up, though. I thought at first when nobody did, I thought you're in trouble now. I just don't... Don't have that camera pan and show it. Everybody, everyone at home is standing up. (laughs) I thank you for your joining me in that. Because a fight is what we have on our hands. The very thing that we brought up today for a potential benevolent uh, offering is evidence that the spiritual battle rages on. We can choose to ignore, we can choose not to be a part of it. Or we can say, I am going to suit up, I'm going to armor up, book of Ephesians, I'm going to armor up and get in this fight. But when you do that, understand this. When you decide to be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness, they're coming after you. Discouragement. It might just be something somebody says. You know, somebody, I, try to, I try real hard to ignore comments that I think might have been negative, but I'm not sure, so I don't try to dwell on them. But every now and again, one slips into my cerebral cortex here, and it just starts churning. What do they mean by that? Instead of asking, that would be the helpful thing to do, instead of asking them, what did you mean by that? Hey, were you being a jerk when you said this thing? You know, instead of that, I just think about a million different ways I could have taken that. And how often do I, do I give them the benefit of the doubt that it's the best way? It's usually somewhere in the lower 50 percentile. Uh, you know, our minds just, our minds just do that to us. Don't let them. I love the second verse of that. I think it's the second verse. Uh, somebody can look me up and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But that uh, that soon and very, very soon we we're going to see the king. The next verse, no more crying there. You're tired now. You're, you're exhausted spiritually. You, you, you've been in the battle. You're, you've been cut up. You've been banged up. You've been all these things. And, and you're crying, and you're, and you're sometimes broken and a mess. But God says, hey, no, no more crying there. We're going to see the king. So hold on. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. He finishes up this passage. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God, my God, out of heaven, In my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope that we have ears ready to hear. Ready to devour these messages and say, I am ready to start putting them into practice. God has a way of taking that which was rejected by others and making something special out of it. If you hear or feel you've been rejected by every corner of creation, you are not rejected here. You are welcome here. You are loved here. And we want to put you to work. If so there's something that you have a, a gifting or a, a talent, something that you can offer, we want to put you to work because you are something special here. And God, only because God does that, do we, can we then come behind it and say, well, why don't we copy that? And he's not just involving them, but making them key pieces. Look, he says, I'm going to take you rejected uh, castaways. I'm going to make you pillars in my temple. The pillars hold the, hold the whole weight of the temple." And he's going to make you pillars. You who were once maligned, you who were once oppressed, on the fringes of society, says, hey, come on in. I've got an important role for you. And it's not like we tell a little kid, hey, I've got a really important job for you. It's like to go away for two hours. You know? You guys do that too, right? Tell a little kid, hey, i got a really important job for you. It's to watch that wall for a couple hours while I'm trying to get something done. And I saw a funny, um has nothing to do with the sermon, but I saw this funny picture on Facebook. And it was a dad who was laying on a couch and it says I told my kids to draw a picture of me taking a nap. So I could take a nap <laughs> and keep them and keep them plugging away. <laughs> As they're drawing these pictures, he's getting his nap. So but God doesn't do that. He not he doesn't pander to us. He doesn't patronize us. He makes us pillars. Your mistakes, your past doesn't define you. Your relationship with Jesus defines you. Your faithfulness to him defines you. Your faithfulness to keep his word and not deny his name defines you. And so we, as we look, as we have been through all these churches, we're looking to improve our vision, right? We're looking for how can this help me see better? How can this help me see the world out there better, more faithfully, more scripturally? I want to make a couple of observations. Now, the first thing is this. We've already talked about it, but this is a young church. They have little power, little money, little influence. And again, I say we could parallel all those, right? You might say, ah, I'm just in Braidwood. We just got, you know, 50, 60 people here today. It's, you know, we don't have that much money in the bank. And, and well, why don't we just give up? We don't give up because God doesn't need us to be awesome. He's already got that covered. He just needs us to be faithful and obedient. Now, Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. And I would say that's primarily in context to him as a pastor, but it's I think we could also take that on as as a church. We are a a young church. A lot of people say, oh, you can't can't even expect to be ready to do those things, whatever those things are. You can't be ready or expect to be ready to do those things until you're at least 20 years old. Garbage. We're we're ready when the king comes calling to do exactly as he calls us to do because he's not going to call those who are ready. He's going to ready those who are called. We may be a young, small church, but I'll not let our youth be despised. And I don't want any of you who stood up and said, I stand with this church to preach and proclaim God's truth. Don't let our youth be despised. You all have a lot to offer those people out there as they come in here. At the same time, we have to be careful not to let our guard down like Sardis did, right? Not to get too confident in what we have put together. Not to be too confident in the systems or the programs we put together. In Philadelphia, there's nothing negative said about Philadelphia, but it may be largely due to the fact that they were a young church. They hadn't yet got involved in all the fights and the spats and the quarrels of what color chairs we should have. It's amazing what churches fight over. Stupid stuff, real stupid stuff. That the the chairs and the curtains should be different colors. I don't care if we're standing in the middle of a cornfield. Whether we have a system, if, if I talk louder, we don't have a microphone and speakers, I'll talk louder. We don't need any of this. If God's called us to it. The second thing is, the first thing, don't let the youthfulness of our church or the church in Philadelphia be despised. The second thing is uh, coming back to the idea of open doors for ministry. I told you throughout the New Testament we see this mostly in Paul. He says in Colossians chapter 4, and verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. While Paul is in prison, he's praying for open door opportunities. Well, yeah, I guess he would pray for an open door. I'd pray for an open door. A prison door. (laughs) But Paul, all joking aside, Paul, even in prison, is so expectant for God to move and to work that he's looking for prisoners to, to, to speak to. He's looking for opportunities to minister to people. Acts chapter 14, verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, a people, a group of people that they would have said were off limits. They're just, they're not even part of the plan. Yet God had a, a massively uh, open door through Cornelius and, and others for that to start in Acts chapter 10. And then finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. I love this verse. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This verse became so real to me at a point in time in my life when I was transitioning. And I brought this verse up and it just it seems like it was like my, like God wrote this verse for me. I have opened a wide and effective door of ministry to you, but there are going to be many adversaries. Not everybody's going to like that. In fact, some people will probably hate you. Are you willing to let some people probably hate you because God's called you to do some stuff? If we want to be people pleasers, we can be that, but you can't please many. You can please a few for a while, and then they get mad at you. And then what do you have when they're mad at you? You didn't please God, and you didn't please people. You're kind of a zero at that point. And so I just said, you know, I'm staking my claim with Jesus. I'm going to try to please the king. And then the right people will be pleased. And with Paul, he says, you know, it's a simple, it's a small thing what you think of me. It's not for me. I, I love you all, and it's a big thing what you think of me. But it, it's, I love that line from Paul. I mean, he says to these people, these Pharisees, he says, you know, it's a small thing what you it doesn't matter. Uh, this guy has been getting beaten and stuff. So, the question I have for you. What doors of ministry is God opening wide to you, to us as a church? Uh, maybe it's a relationship that just started. A new person. You know what's the easiest time in that relationship is the beginning? The easiest time to, to share Jesus with other people is to right out of the gate, let them know who you are. Because if you flirt around with that and say, "Well, let's let's talk basketball first. maybe eventually we get to Jesus. But then the next thing you know, you're going to the bar to, to watch basketball. The next thing you know, you're, you're going to some joint you shouldn't be in. The next thing you know, and, and by the time you decide to bring his name up, you so muddied his name that's at best hypocritical and and, and probably does does worse than just a. You should have started with Jesus. Let them know they can walk away from you now if they don't want that. You might be the aroma of death to them. Let let yourself be that. You are who you are in Jesus. Let the chips fall where they may. Maybe it's a coincidence that you just—you know—I I love if I can pick on Rick. I, I love Rick Wilson's approach to this. If you haven't had a chance to talk to him, you get talk to him. Every opportunity he he sees as a divine appointment that God has brought to him. That's not to say that sometimes God wouldn't tell you not now, and I'm sure he's obeyed that uh, that uh, a, t- a time or two as well. But. See, every opportunity that God brings across your path is an opportunity to share the gospel. I, for a while, I traveled for uh, a couple years for my for my work, and, and uh, I, I got in the habit, almost every time I got on the plane, I would pray in the seats before I boarded the plane, I would pray, God, sit me next to somebody who needs to hear the gospel. You know, not one single time that I prayed that prayer was I not in a conversation about Jesus in the first five minutes. And not forced either. I'm not talking, you know, Jesus. I, I, I'm, not, I'm never open with, you know where you're going to go when you, when you die. I don't start with that. Um, it was the weirdest thing, and I'm closing my thoughts here pretty soon, but it was the weirdest thing because a number of years ago, when I was praying this, I, God sat me down to an attractive 20-something. I was about 23, 24 years old, and I thought, certainly not, God. You don't have for me to witness and talk and, and chat with this girl who is about my age, Young, attractive, and I'm going to look like I'm flirting with her, perhaps. And God just blasted me. He said, "Because oh, you're because of your limitations, because of your uh, temptations, because of your problems, she doesn't deserve to hear the gospel." Shame on you, Jeff. So I started talking gospel. We we talked for two hours, and at the end of that conversation, I don't know that she made a decision. I don't know that she made a decision today. To this day, I don't know. But I said, hey, I I know I've already made myself kind of weird to you, but if I can make myself a little bit more weird. Uh, I said, I'm going to give you a number, a phone number. And it's not my number, it's my wife's number. I said, because if you make a decision for Jesus, we would love to hear about it. We haven't heard. But that doesn't mean that there isn't that rock in her shoe. Every step she takes, she's got to deal with Jesus. Because of that conversation that we had on that plane 12 years ago. Be faithful and you'll be shocked at how many divine appointments you have now. And you'll probably start asking, well, I wonder if I had that many divine appointments before. I just missed them. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And Philadelphia was young and lacked power by the world's estimation. They didn't have much to offer by the world's estimation. But always remember this. It may sound cliche, I'm going to say it again, but always remember this. That with God, your little is much when he is in it. Your little is much when God is in it. Sometimes your greatest ability is simply and nothing more than your availability. Sometimes your greatest ability to leverage for God's kingdom is just that, your availability. I am willing, here I am, send me. Keep his word. Be faithful to patiently endure and watch God make a pillar out of you. A pillar in this church, a pillar in this community, and a pillar in his kingdom. That's what he wants to do with you. I hope that you'll be faithful to that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the church of Philadelphia. We thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for their patient endurance. That they did not deny your name. And so we have a week we can take a breath and and say, There's nothing negative to say about this church. Uh, Might we grow to be a church where there's nothing negative? In order to say something bad about ignite Christian church, people will have to lie. Or might we be that committed to you and your kingdom? That people would have to lie about us in order to say anything negative. But it's not about us, Lord, it's about you. It's about your kingdom about what you're doing. It's about what you're building. And we're just glad to be a part of it. Help us to be faithful to it, Lord. As we go from this place, give us opportunities. Give us divine appointments. And give us the courage to keep them. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus.